0: Christian newscast. An Iranian convert has been exchanging messages with a Christian friend. They agree to take a risk and meet in person. When he arrives at the agreed location, however, he's quickly arrested by security forces who are waiting for him. It turns out the authorities had intercepted his messages, impersonated his contact, and led him into a trap. Thousands of miles away in India, a village's water supply becomes contaminated and several locals die. Hindu nationalist extremists begin to share messages on Facebook and WhatsApp, claiming a Christian living in the village has cursed the water. An enraged mob, convinced by what they read on their phones, lynches the Christian. Believers living across China are startled by sudden police raids and hours of interrogation. It emerges they only got onto the government's radar in the first place simply by buying books online from a Christian store in Taiju which has since been shut down by the authorities and had all its data seized. This is the modern face of persecution in the 21st century. The digital revolution has reached anti-Christian oppression. I'm Tim Watt and you're listening to Premier Christian Newscast. This week we're digging into digital persecution, the pervasive censorship, surveillance and repression enacted via the internet and modern technology. From facial recognition software to firewalls, what are the persecuted church dealing with today exactly? How has one country, China, become a nexus of this kind of high-tech persecution? And what can believers in the Safe West do to fight back? faithful living under repressive regimes or surrounded by violent extremists are still tragically subject to traditional persecution, imprisonment, physical attack, violent threats, harassment and even death. But increasingly persecution comes via the internet, on social media platforms and sometimes even via the smart devices Christians use themselves. Traditional oppression is today being supplemented by new forms of persecution, explained Dave Landrum the Director of Advocacy and Public Affairs for Open Doors, a persecuted church charity.
1: It's persecution in a new form, but it also helps facilitate and connect with the old form. So, you know, if you can, in China now, and I'll talk about China probably quite a bit, because because that seems to be the, the nexus for all of this, pastors are still arrested and people still have their front door kicked in and they're dragged off and interrogated and threatened and everything but that's helped by digital surveillance to an incredible degree and the whole point of digital the whole point of digital persecution is self-censorship and that's really really important to understand if you can if you can um, modify people's behavior you don't have to kick their door in so often. So digital persecution, in one sense, it's about suffocating uh, the church in various parts of the world. And it it's given a whole set of new tools to these oppressive states and regimes. I mean, there's a, there's a positive side to it in the sense that it's enabled Christians to communicate with each other across the world and within countries as well, which is brilliant. But... The advent of new waves of of tech, so all the AI stuff that's rolling out this year, basically gives states, people who hold the regulatory authority in particular countries, more power than individuals and groups, more, more power than they could ever have dreamed of to basically surveil them, censor them, and misrepresent them as well. And this is going to be the big challenge we think going forward with AI and GAI.
0: Francis Davis, professor of civic leadership and international studies at Roehampton University and an academic expert in this area, explained that modern technology had radically lowered the resources required to harass or coerce underground Christians.
2: I think there's two things. So depending on the country and the context and the firm and the venture, um, it's old persecutions presented in new ways and new persecutions because it gives new capabilities to organisations that didn't exist before, and capabilities to organisations that, if you look at them from a distance, look quite small, but because they have the because they have these capabilities, they can reach to places, do things, undermine things, and create problems that um, before might have taken lots and lots and lots of people to do it physically. So, if you think think of surveillance. If I wanted to keep an eye on a Chinese church, a Chinese Christian church, um, Central Station, I might have had to put twenty sleepers inside the congregation to have followed the past around, to have people doing surveillance across the street. Huh. Now I can just fly in a drone the size of a fly, or I can put cameras onto streets, on, onto street lamps opposite. Uh, Or I can hack into the the streaming that the church is doing and know exactly who's in the room. And then I can probably follow the the pastor around simply because of the fact that his car is significantly digital. And I can hack into it and listen to the conversations.
0: It is inescapable that the global technological superpower that is China sits at the heart of the digital persecution revolution. Pioneering in both software and hardware, China is also a deeply repressive state itself. For decades, the Chinese Communist Party has tried to control, suppress and at times even eliminate the church within its borders. In recent years, and particularly since the rise to power of Xi Jinping in 2012, China's Christians have become the target of the country's surveillance state. China is blanketed with CCTV cameras. By some estimates, more than half of the total cameras on earth are now inside China. And many of these networks are connected to facial recognition software, which means specific individuals can be tracked automatically and with ease. Accessing many public spaces or buildings in China requires scanning a QR code on your phone, creating another digital paper trail for the authorities on potential target's whereabouts. And all this is before the smartphones of Christians themselves are turned against them. All data collected by tech companies is easily accessible by the government should it desire it, meaning GPS location data can be used to monitor anyone deemed an enemy of the state or party. And if spyware can be surreptitiously installed on a target's phone, the device itself can be turned into a bug that sends live audio from underground church meetings straight to the government. And all that's before we consider more subtle forms of persecution. Recent laws have made sharing or possessing Christian material online a crime. Bible apps have been scrubbed from both the Apple and Android app stores in China as a result. With powerful AI-driven programs automatically scanning the Chinese internet for banned or suspicious words, Chinese Christians are forced to speak in code whenever they communicate online. There have even been reports of churches meeting on China's equivalent of Zoom, finding that their streams are suddenly ended because they use banned words such as Christ. But this kind of techno-repression does not end at China's border. In the words of the US government funded charity the Open Tech Fund, there are now over 100 nations bound into the Chinese technosphere. These are countries that have bought into China's surveillance and censorship technologies, installing their CCTV cameras and building local versions of the great firewall of China into their own internet networks. And beyond simply using the same software and hardware as Beijing, these countries sometimes send their people to be trained by Chinese officials in how to use this kit for coercion, control and repression. Dave Landrum from Open Doors said this was a pressing concern.
1: Huge. It's a huge concern because... So Nigeria, a few years ago, following the riots they had around the COVID uh, restrictions, etc., they bought a load of tech. From um, Nigeria to monitor dissidents, who that could be, could be very subjective, you know. And you think about it de facto, as a state buys this tech technology, it is buying into the ideology. You are becoming a surveillance state, which is what China is.
0: Davis agreed, noting China was now decades ahead at installing its technology into the infrastructure of the developing world and only recently had the West woken up to just how far behind they were.
2: What every country that has firms that have an operating system tries to do is to export its technological standards. So, um, you know, the U.S. has gone big on Apple, gone big on Microsoft and seeks to make those standards dominant. China, in competition, is trying to make uh, its standards dominant. Um, And how does it do that? Well, China puts very few restrictions on aid, but it puts quite a few restrictions on business, on business investments. So we tend to say, oh, the Chinese restrict their aid. But what they're much more likely to do is to say, Hey, do you know what? We will provide you with a low-cost loan from our import-export bank to put in place all of the infrastructure for digital kit in your country, so for digital infrastructure in your country. But the reason why that import-export loan is going to be so low is that we're going to require you to buy... All of the kit and all of the operating equipment that you put on it from our companies. And so, um, in one fell swoop, they land the business deal. They technically haven't provided aid because it's a business loan. Uh, and they've created the conditions for Chinese companies to come in and sell all their ware. On the back of that, if you've got a deal between Chinese companies and the state, saying, we have to hand over data or we have to give access to government oh. then in one fell swoop you've captured you've you've imposed you've captured the marketplace for your phone companies you've captured the operating standards so that everybody coming in afterwards has to follow your style yeah oh. uh, and you're in so uh so i i i So what I'd say is there is a global competition in that space. And in some countries, a lot of the time, the Chinese are wiping the floor, especially in Asia and Africa. I mean, they absolutely dominate in Asia.
0: Alongside surveillance and censorship, the third major strand of digital persecution is the use of disinformation and intimidation online. Oppressors across the globe have learned that sometimes physically attacking a church leader in order to scare them into fleeing is unnecessary. Poisonous rumours spread online can often achieve the same effect without any risk of personal injury. Anna Lee Stangle, who leads Christian Solidarity Worldwide's work in the Americas, said the communist Cuban government had been very effective at crippling specific church pastors it saw as a threat by spreading malicious stories online.
3: The government is, has always been very... um strategic and where it cracks down and where it doesn't but it would monitor survey pastors would know and do know constantly they're being watched and monitored um and be very careful in what they say in their preaching and their prayers because because they're at least these pastors are illegal at any moment they could be cracked down and shut down um and taken away um and so as part of that i've mentioned the infiltration so that that's and that's where you get the digital technology and how that's being used but the government has always had a very um very intrusive internal intelligence, um, operation. Uh, the human state security was trained by the East German Stasi. And so most of the tactics they use, the way they operate is very similar to how the Stasi worked. Um, and was one of the most, the Stasi is one of the most effective internal intelligence groups in the, in the world. Um, so with social media that kind of opened a whole new front to the government to do that kind of thing. And so um Cuba had very strong limitation restrictions on the internet um, uh, through the two thousands. Um, it was very it was very limited in terms of being able to access the internet. Um, that has changed a bit in the last ten years. It's opened up more especially with tourism growing. Uh, it's been hard for the government to really completely restrict the internet in the way they did before. but um they still monitor very closely and There's different things. So, well, because back to the restrictions, because it was so restricted, most Cubans, I think like a lot of people around the world, are not necessarily super tech savvy. And so lots of my friends don't know how to put restrictions on their Facebook account, for example, or know that they should do that. Um, In Cuba, it's even wider. People just don't, they don't, they aren't aware of these things and so they don't do them. And they leave themselves open to to different types of things, hacking and things like that. So Facebook has been a, a real... Um, center of all of this. And we've seen things like the government um, or government agents hacking into people's accounts or creating spoof accounts under someone's name, a a pastor or human rights activist, and then starting to put out offensive messages or pornographic things. And it's reputational, trying to to damage their reputations. Um, But also there have been instances where uh, what appears to be a normal individual's account in Cuba will post like an anonymous. Happened a few years ago. An anonymous, an anonymous Christian wrote an essay about all these pastors in the Baptist Convention and their corruption, and had pictures of them. And it was the person who wrote it. It was it was fake. What they were saying was all false. But they posted it, and that started to be shared widely across Facebook in Cuba, and against reputational damage that they're trying to to do there. Um, It's interesting because we, with that particular case, we knew some of the pastors, they reported it to us immediately. We were able to, where we tried to to go in and kind of trace where it was shared from. And it was clear that some of the people sharing it were real people, um, like real, they they seem to have a larger presence than just a Facebook account. Um, And and some of them, the, the pastors knew they were into their neighborhoods or things like that. But then some of them appeared to be completely fake accounts just set up to share and move things forward. Um, similarly, this is on Facebook, but about <laughs> 10 years ago, um, someone set up a, a gossip blog, um, which was interesting, because <laughs> it was completely focused only on human rights activists. Um, and so it was under the guise of being this like kind of scandal gossip type thing, but the only people they went after were um, rights defenders, other political dissidents, and often with really um, very offensive things. So in, in, one, in some, one case, they, they somehow faked a video of a human rights defender naked in bed with another woman, um, and they put that up and accused him of cheating on his wife, who's another big human rights defender. And it was mostly only human rights defenders, but then they started going after a pastor called Alain Tolerano, who's... Um, who went into exile last year, um, forced exile, but he was uh, the pastor of a very large unregistered church in the eastern part of Cuba. Um, and they, the, the, it, it became pretty clear that state security was, had created this blog and were running it, although it was under someone's name. Um, but they went after him and they accused him of cheating on his wife, of having affairs with congregants. They accused him of um, rape, like years and years ago. Um, they accused, uh, his daughters of I can't put they, they went after his two young like underage daughters as well or the kind of many accusations that they were having affairs with men in the church when they were both young um for those who knew them it was clear that this was untrue um but the psychological damage that that does to someone um having just to have to to deal with um not just fake information but really offensive and, and sometimes destructive information being put out there and shared about them takes its toll.
0: Stangle also related another incident where an activist who had become a Christian through his campaigning started to receive threatening private messages via Facebook, culminating in veiled ominous warnings just as he went on a short pre-Christmas holiday.
3: He said within an hour he had a private message on Facebook saying so we saw you pack your car this morning, we know you're driving to this place, Um, just hope that you have a safe journey and you arrive in one piece basically. Things like that that are like veiled threats but also very specific and that we are watching you we know what you're doing mm. um that again just take a very heavy psychological toll which is the intent mm. is to try and just make them think they're crazy um
0: and do you see that having a kind of chilling effect on church leaders and and christians you know starting to 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 um you know change their behavior or kind of try and be less visible that kind of thing
3: it, it depends a lot on the person um as this like, is normal, um, some people uh, become paranoid um, and just don't trust anyone at all. And we've had people we worked with who refused basically to work with anyone else because um, they were so afraid that anyone they spoke to was, was an agent or, or somehow lied to the government, which is really unhealthy because you need, especially in a situation like that, you need support. You need to have networks and people who isolate themselves like that and just become super, super paranoid. Um, and understandably so, but it's very unhealthy.
0: China has another favoured intimidation tactic, perfected against the mostly Muslim Uyghur population in Xinjiang. This playbook sees the police pick up the family of an exiled religious leader, take them to a police station and force them to start a video call with their relative overseas. When the target answers the call, they instead see a police officer with their family in the background sternly demanding they return to China immediately or else. Premier Christian newscast.
1: Premier Christian newscast.
0: So what can the church do about persecution that has been turbocharged by our technological revolution? Some things are simply common sense. Landrum says persecuted Christians, especially in China, have to stop taking their digital devices with them when attending services or meetings. In fact, that was a precaution he and his colleagues at Open Doors had started doing in their own UK office.
1: So, you know, we're having conversations at the moment about when we talk about certain issues, because we have very high security levels in open doors because a lot of our work is covert. Do we need to do it with all, all devices out of the room, et cetera? And I think we do. I just think mm. that's common sense now. I mean, you hear
0: stories, don't you, of, of people in places, Christians in China, you know, putting their phones in the microwave before they, you know, join well, a house church meeting.
1: They, yeah. Yeah, you can do that. You can get the little, um, what are they called, the little bags and, I can't remember the name of the bags and boxes and stuff, uh, Farrier boxes and bags. But like, they can't get access to them in China. And we're so dependent on the tech now for everything we do every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the challenge. The tech becomes endemic and so does then the surveillance and the control uh, dimension of it. (laughs) And how do we
0: as a church then respond to that? Like, what what things can we be doing now to kind of protect us from falling for these kind of disinformation campaigns?
1: I mean, there's one one basic level, and that is um, do do the basics, and that is know your Bible before people can misrepresent it. So the Chinese government are already uh, rewriting Bible stories in certain parts of China. Uh, So know your Bible and go low-tech in terms of, relationships, real, genuine relationships of trust. That's what's going to really make the difference for persecuted minority churches that are underground for the most part. And that's always been the case, really. They just need to be far more savvy about the way they engage with tech Mm. or the way they're near tech. You know, the problem with Chinese churches right now is not just the imposition of the facial recognition, CCTV cameras in all the three self churches, which is now mandatory. But they put uh, cameras all around the churches to catch people. You know, it's, it's not just in the church, it's around the church buildings as well. And the Chinese government, because of the Marxist mindset, they're constantly trying to integrate and centralize constantly. So little bits of information get put together. And it's all about the data. You know, try and guard your data. Try not to give too much information away about yourself.
0: Stangles said that in Cuba, all important communication had to take place via encrypted platforms such as WhatsApp, although these were only as secure as the phone receiving any messages, and the government regularly confiscated phones there from pastors in an effort to eavesdrop into these conversations. In the end, she said low-tech face-to-face conversation was still the most powerful and safest way to communicate. Another part of the response should include lobbying of both Western governments and international tech companies. While much of the digital persecution is being carried out by Chinese firms, sometimes Apple, Microsoft, Google and others comply with the censorship of Christian material online. Christians should insist that Western companies refuse to yield to demands for censorship or surveillance, Landrum said.
1: Well, we've we put we put together a whole set of policy recommendations in, for our advocacy work, and some of them are like, you know we want to see in the uk we want to see stronger due diligence uh, requirements for uk companies trading in tech around the world have you checked whether this piece of technology can be used or adapted for digital persecution um, in some ways better training for gu- in terms of guidance for online uh, moderators etc we we clearly need um sets of like Ethical guidelines for the use of tech. I mean, this is what Musk is talking for, talking about. Where are the ethical guidelines? This tech now, um, you know, when you've got Musk in the head of Google saying, uh, "Hang on a minute, we need to slow down," and you know they're complicit in this as well. By the way, Apple and Google both uh, banned the apps in the Chinese stores, the Bible apps, etc. So we need ethical guidelines. We need regulatory. Frameworks for trade in tech. We're doing a lot of work at this moment in time on the connection between human rights, religious liberty, and our trade deals that we're doing across the world because post Brexit, you know, the UK is cobbling together all these different trade deals. So, why aren't we talking about human rights? And if we're talking about human rights, we've got to talk about religious liberty because it underpins all human rights. So, we're pushing in that direction a lot. And that brings in the trade stuff into the in, into the discussion,
0: but there also needs to be a sea change in how persecution is understood. Davis argues, old models of advocacy for the persecuted church needed to be ripped up and started again.
2: So I, I think there are particular sectors that become increasingly important, and sometimes churches and their advocacy don't look for them because we because we so often told in churches like we must speak truth to power we think that our congregation must send a petition or our congregation must have another training event in our congregation, right? Yeah. Now, we must, we must do that as well, but I think we need to get better at targeting the places that have got the leverage, yeah? And so, first one of those is big government regulating big tech, country by country. Yeah. But actually, in, in this space... The firms making tech are simultaneously so big and so decentralized that that means really, really joined up government collaboration to be able to do that. So you need supranational collaboration. And aligned with that, really importantly, are um, institutions that we wouldn't normally pay much attention to as churches such as the International Standards Organization, which comes up with, for example, the standardized size of a container to go on a vessel, but can also come up with standardized operating sign-offs in telecoms and digital and microfinance. Um, The International Telecoms Union, which is the collaborative institution globally for all of the telecommunications companies. Um, But they're kind of like a back back doorway by which firms and countries that don't want to be regulated or don't want to have high standards of human rights required of them kind of find a way of, in that sense, backfilling the standards to a lower level than you might get at the national level. So states on their own, states together but also all those international institutions.
0: And for those personally passionate about stopping persecution, new vocations might include specialising in accounting and audit to hold powerful international tech conglomerates to high human rights standards, he added.
2: When it comes to data um, that's flowing across countries and volumes of cash that are moving by digital transfer then the internal navigation of those institutions becomes more important than ever, which means that Christian accountants, those doing advocacy to make sure that accounting, audit and risk have much, much higher standards of social responsibility, human rights and accountability becomes absolutely critical. So, government, intergovernment collaboration, these international treaties like standards and whatever, and then the future of... What, what you might call the business transparency profession, starting with accounting, mm. seem to me to be all new vocations for activity by Christians that care about the space.
0: That's fascinating. Really
2: which makes it a lot harder bloody work than what I've been used to doing for 30 years, which is rocking up, screaming at an MP, chucking out a report and saying, I've done my job. <laughs> what we need in response to that is kind of like new institutions, And they need to be new institutions and new Christian movements, which take transparency and the ethics of data so seriously that absolutely everything about them is in the public sphere. So they kind of model as a counter, as a counter witness. And so what we need is a, a new generation of Christian activists that's robot literate, tech literate, data literate. You know, they're able to read some of the algorithms that go into the AI stuff and decode it and show how the very coding at the heart of an oppression is the source of what's immoral. Because they can read that code and you know, fight the fight fight the oppressors with their own with their own code and their own game.
0: So there you have it. The new frontier for advocates for the persecuted church is knowing how to decode an AI algorithm. Or how to unpick a multinational tech firm's account to spot where they're covertly selling data on vulnerable populations to repressive regimes. Or understanding how to lobby the International Telecommunications Union so they don't allow Chinese companies to secretly lower human rights standards by the back door. Over to you. That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast. But if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use. And why not also tell a friend about the show? Don't forget to also subscribe to the podcast on your phone or tablet to ensure that you receive each episode automatically sent to your device week by week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian
1: Newscast.